Good morning, and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. Your hosts for this episode include myself, Miku, and my partner, Kie. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Contributions are being made to tackle climate change on a global scale, from government commitments to corporate CEOs releasing their yearly carbon reduction targets. Though with every new promise for a better and brighter future, our present day news reports parts of the world working desperately to suppress major climate shocks. Today, we're honing in on the topic of climate action and how Toronto can remain a resilient city in the future to come. Former Chief Resilience Officer Elliot Capel will bring us up to speed on Toronto's resilience strategy, while our second guest, Professor John Robinson, will go beyond resilience to address the multifaceted components that are integral to Toronto's future as a sustainable city. Elliot Capel plays a principal role in tackling climate change through multiple lenses. He currently holds the title as National Climate Change Leader and partner of PwC Canada. Based in Toronto, Elliot is an ESG and net zero leader, advising TSX 60 companies, global investors, and international investors on climate risk, decarbonization, and climate strategy. Elliot's technical areas of focus are climate strategy, resilience, and task force on climate-related financial disclosures. Prior to joining PwC, Elliot participated in the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities, helping cities worldwide build resilience to the physical, social, and economic challenges that are a growing part of the 21st century. Elliot acted as Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Toronto from 2017 to 2019. Today, we'll learn from Elliot about his experience in his role, what he has learned since then, and what he expects for the future of Toronto. Elliot Capel, on behalf of the Monk School and Beyond the Headlines, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. Pleasure. So before we dive into this topic, could you provide some background on the goal behind adding Toronto to the 100 Resilient Cities Network and the role you played within that as Chief Resilience Officer? Yeah, sure. So, you know, more broadly, the 100 Resilient Cities Network emerged from the recognition that cities were on the front line of climate change but also on the front line of a number of related social and economic issues. And that resilience itself wasn't just a, a resilience to climate change. So for example, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, obviously there was a very significant uh, natural disaster, but the impacts of that were made uh, more significant, worse, different um, by social and political structures like land use planning, um, failures in infrastructure planning, frankly, um, social dynamics, uh, institutional racism, namely. And so there was a, this sort of concept, very important concept, that resilience was more holistic than just resilience to climate change. So that was kind of the genesis of the 100 Resilient Cities Network. Um, Toronto uh, applied, I think, in the original wave, but they were accepted in the second wave uh, mm-hmm. of cities um, with a number of, of broad-based resilience issues, obviously climate change being top of the agenda, but also... Um, urban development issues related to uh, poverty, related to transportation, 
um, buildings and, and so on, all of which sort of came together to form this holistic picture of resilience in the city, which uh, which we'll talk about, uh, I'm sure. Um, I was hired in, uh, well, I started in, in June of 2017 as Chief Resilience Officer. Um, the role was really to play point person on Toronto's uh, role in the 100 Cities Network, develop the Toronto Resilience Strategy, and overall be a point person um, both in the organization, in the corporation, the city of Toronto, but also more broadly in the city of Toronto um, on the topic of resilience. Mm -hmm. And being from a generation that was taught about climate change from a very young age and being told by older generations to start preparing for a very difficult future and to forget the thought of even kids, I feel like I've been grown up to be very much aware of our changing planet Though, as I was looking over Toronto's resilience strategy, I felt myself getting nervous reading over the focus areas and these priority actions that aim to prepare city homes and neighborhoods for things like major climate shocks, like putting together a citywide flood plan, taking actions to mitigate extreme heat. And even if you see it in other parts of the world and on the news, it's relatively easy not to think about because it's not happening directly at your doorstep. So reading it over made me think, are these catastrophic floods and heat waves the inevitability of what Toronto will come to face? So let me take that in, in three, three parts. The first is, you know, our exposure to these climate events, climate change. Uh, it's not inevitable, but it is exceptionally likely. So um, we don't know what's to come, but there's a growing consensus of like, if you look at um, the evolution of, uh, climate science and climate modeling over time, uh, the different scenarios with the highest warming scenario and the lowest warming scenario, when we originally started, when the world kind of started originally started to model these things, there was quite a wide divergence between those. And what we're seeing is that the scenarios are actually getting closer and closer together. So we have a reasonably good view uh, of, of what is coming. And frankly, it's uh, hotter, it's wetter uh, and wilder. The wilder point is, is, is quite important because um, what we don't know are about these sort of what are called climate change tipping points, right? So there are certain tipping points within global systems that have never been reached or haven't been reached in, in say like recorded history. Um, and should those take place, it could completely change our climate models likely for the worse. Um, so uh, there's a bit of unpredictability in there, but we can reasonably prepare for extreme heat um, and an increase in the intensity and frequency of, of rain events. That's the first part exposure. I mean, the, the key second piece here is, you know, what are we vulnerable to, right? Um, is it possible for us to build a city which is more equitable, resilient to climate change, uh, more prosperous, et cetera? And I think what we see from examples around the world is that it is possible. One of those leading examples, one of the best examples of this in the whole world is in Toronto, and so few people know about it, it's amazing. But uh, the Don River Renaturalization Project in Toronto uh, is a huge project. The sidewalk labs failed uh, redevelopment of, of, uh, of part of it is really the only part that's, that makes the news on a regular basis. Uh, but there's a huge part of Toronto that's being redeveloped, um, made more resilient to climate change, new neighborhoods being built that are, are, meant, are aimed to be net zero or climate positive, um, great impacts for biodiversity, for urban transport, uh, and also for real estate value, frankly. There's, there are financial values behind this also. And when we look globally at, at, at projects like the Big U in New York City, or at the way that flood protection is managed in uh, the Netherlands and Holland, um, we see that it is like, despite the inevitability of what I said at the start about uh, um, uh, our exposure, it is possible to reduce our vulnerability. And just the, the, the third thing I would say 
is, you know, you start with being from a generation um, and being acutely aware of, of, of the changing planet. I, I mean, the flip side of that is that you may not be aware of just how much progress has been made, right? I, I was at, you know, um, the Conference of Parties uh, in Paris uh, where the Paris Agreement was formed. And I remember I was working for a consulting firm at the time and we decided to go and there was a real debate, like, should business even really be at the table? Like, wh why are consultants going to COP? That debate is like way in that <laughs> now every business, every bank, every investor, like there's such a huge coalition of people driving towards decarbonization. You know what, what I thought every time I set a goal and I say, you know, I would really love to see this achieved in Canada in the next five years, it tends to happen in the next 18 to 24 months. And that's not because I'm setting the goal. That's because we are, uh, uh, the, the pace of change is so fast. So I would say, don't lose hope. We've come so far in such a short period of time that even though the context that we're working in is quite frankly, an almost certainly warming planet, we can still make a lot of progress. That's great to hear. It's, it's always a, I feel a dichotomy of things that you're hearing, or at least that I am in terms of companies and businesses that are saying that they're making these great changes towards, you know, making sure that they are being sustainable and environmentally friendly. And then you hear scientists saying that it's way too late. We're far beyond this possibility that that does give hope for sure. Um, you also did publish an article on August 1st in 2019 to publicly announce the 100 Resilient City Project shutting down. And you lay bare the three main lessons that you learned from this experience, which by the way, I really loved that article. I thought that you, the fact that you didn't sugarcoat it at all was, it sounded great. Um, but one of the main lessons that you spoke of was that in public policy, simple ideas become complex very quickly. Cities themselves are extremely complex systems to try and navigate. And what the 100RC did was not just make simple strategies complex, but they made complex strategies unachievable. So I wanted to touch on this point and ask what public policy strategies can alleviate this complexity issue and how can future policymakers ensure their projects are successful and put into action? Good question. <laughs> I'll try to answer it in, in uh, using one or two um one or two reflections. I mean, when I was addressing your first question about resilience, I think you know, the point was that we can't just think about, you know, resilience is like, you know, I've got a home here and rain is going to increase and I need to build flood resilience, right? Because we have to think about, okay, well, where does that water go? We need to think about the operations and management. We need to think about how to pay for it. You know, we need to think about what's going to happen to the other people on the street. Like there, the, the point of the resilience Cities network was that we needed to think more broadly um, and in a more holistic way. And in particular, when it comes to adapting to climate change, there is a fundamental overlap with equity. You cannot avoid that. Anyone who says that they wanna talk just about uh, resilience or adaptation and they don't wanna talk about social equity is I think fundamentally missing the point. These concepts are deeply related. I'm happy to talk about that. But the, the, the problem was that the concept became so nebulous, right? That it lacked, I would say like a clarity of purpose. There's to speak in a sort of uh, 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 sort of simple way, like you need to know what good looks like. You know what do, what, what what does success look like, and that will allow you to develop. First of all, what's your clarity of purpose? What are you driving towards? What's the problem that you're trying to solve? Um, what are your deadlines or interim targets to getting there? And then how are you going to measure it? Right. If you can't answer those questions, then um, it will be very hard for you to make decisions along the way because ultimately you know, any plan is gonna have to change, right? When we're working in the real world, that's just an inevitability. 
but you need to keep that sort of guiding light of where you're trying to get to in the end um, and how you're going to measure that in mind. And I think that, it, frankly, um, you know, it's very hard, even as a former chief resilience officer, to summarize in one sentence what we were trying to get to. If you can't do that, things will just become incredibly complex. Um, one place where I see, like, from my career, where I've seen this done really well is in uh, the British uh, uh, Department for International Development, which is now uh, part of the uh, what institution? Are they part of another part of the, the, the United Kingdom's Foreign uh, and Commonwealth Development Office (FCDO). Um, they were working a lot with what, what's called theories of change. So you think about your own actions in a program lead to certain outputs, lead to certain outcomes, and hopefully that's driving towards a broader impact. As you move through that theory of change, you have less and less control, right? We know I can write this report, okay? We can write a report, resilience strategy or whatever. That's my, that's my output. How is that linking? What's the theory of linking that to my outcome? And how does that link to a broader impact, which is a more resilient Toronto, right? And you have to be able to define all of those things and connect them together. So I think as, as public policy students, I think, you know, those, sorry, as public policy practitioners, or you need that first lesson, that clarity of purpose, that is obvious and sometimes forgotten. And as students of public policy, I think that, you know, considering this concept of the theory of change and being able to link, you know, your inputs, your actions, your outputs, your outcomes, and your, and your ultimate impact um, is a worthwhile thing to, to look at. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines, broadcasting from CIUT 89.5 FM, Toronto's community radio station. Did you know that every week we release sneak previews of our episode and guests through our Twitter and Instagram channels? Tweet at beyond underscore headlines or DM us with your thoughtful questions and we'll consider asking it to our guests and incorporating it into the show. That's at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Now, since completing your role as Toronto's Chief Resilience Officer in 2019, you have now been providing your climate change expertise through consulting services. And I wanted to ask how you have found that transition moving from the public sector to the private sector when tackling climate action. And what does that comparison between the two look like in terms of progress and outcomes? So I started my career in the Ontario Public Service and then I worked in consulting. Then I went to the Toronto Public Service and now I'm back in consulting. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been to the the change a few times. I think there's always a little bit in, in one's career, whether you're like, say you're moving from a student to professional practice, there's oh, just a student thing, you know, just getting into practice. If you're moving from consulting to the public sector, people say, oh, he, that person's a consultant. He doesn't really know what it's like here. And so there, there's always a little bit of that at the transition point. Um, I love working in consulting. Uh, ultimately, consulting is really about helping your clients and about learning. Um, that's a bit of a simplification and misses some of the other fun aspects of it, like working with peers um, and, and working in big groups. But uh, there's there, there are a lot of lessons that can be taken from like the work that we did on the resilient side uh, in Toronto to work that we're doing for, for clients. A lot of the concepts are the same. Um, but ultimately, it's a great time to work in consulting because when you look at like, you know, Canada's, you know, 100 biggest institutions, be they cities, uh, other orders of government, investors, banks, um, you know, big Canadian companies, uh, telecommunications, mining, um, consumer goods, what have you, um, they all have climate change challenges, right? Um, some of them are trying to get to net zero, some of them are responding to regulatory challenges, some of them are, are responding to social or supply chain issues, 
whatever it is, they all have, have big climate change challenges and um, and opportunities, frankly. Um, and just the nature of the, the, the specialization of this is that while clients are getting a lot better and a lot smarter and building up a lot of capacity, there are still issues which are which they're only going to do once or that are beyond the, the, that are too complex for them to take on on their own or that are just useful to have an outside perspective on. And so as a consultant, I get to work with quite a number of Canada's uh, biggest institutions really specifically on uh, a couple of problems like decarbonization, uh, emissions inventories, climate scenario analysis, re resilience and transition planning, low carbon finance, things that I find really, really interesting. The, the difference is that when you're like, when, when you're doing that as a, as a consultant, it's like, okay, here's the task that we're asking you to do that we can't do ourselves or that we want someone else to do externally for whatever reason. And you complete that task and you're kind of done. Like ideally you, you're a partner to them, you're with them along the journeys for several years, but what you're getting paid for is that chunk. Whereas when you're on the other side of the desk in uh, like as the chief resilience officer of the city of Toronto, you're um, seeing the connection between a bunch of those different projects. Like I was working with like 35 pretty close partners. So I wasn't really getting deep into the work there. You're at a different level where you're trying to actually see the connections between things. Um, it's just a different different angle of looking at uh, really similar problems for me and, and the way that I like to work um, and what drives me, I like to be on the private sector side, um, but I think there's a lot of value in being on the public sector side as well and would encourage students to think about both. Mm. And I think in both fields, in terms of climate action in general, I think a really big topic right now that is a hot debate is how that sort of transition will look. And I wanted to ask you, what would you say to those that hold fear and hesitation toward the economic costs of transitioning to the green sector? Oh, well, it's a good question and there's a lot of it. Um, let me use the example of... Um, of energy, because really a lot of this is about energy, and particularly in Canada, where we have an economy where, particularly in certain parts uh, geographically, have been really driven by fossil fuel extraction. Um, and ultimately, in a net zero world, there's not going to be a lot of that. There won't be none of it, right? There'll still be some of it for sure, but it's going to look really, really different. And ultimately, I think when we talk about fear and hesitation, a lot of it is about change, either at a big level, like at a provincial level, like what's going to happen in certain provinces. Uh, their economies, but it could also be at a local level or very household level. Like if I, so let me use the example of energy because this is really what it, when we talk about transition, there's a lot of elements, but energy is at the core fundamentally. Um, you know, if we go back to the question of like not trying to complicate a problem, like transition is a big complex issue, energy is, is, is where, where it's at. Um, I'll just talk about how I heat and power my home. So um, I've got particularly if you live in like rural Ontario, right? You have a, a, a system which is fairly expensive. It's expensive to heat one's home. Electricity bills have gone up consistently over time and they will go up as we invest more in new, new forms of energy. It's unreliable. We have a lot of areas where we don't know where we're gonna get power from because of the shutting down of, of large sources of power. Um, we, need more, we need more electricity generally and we need it to be cleaner and we don't have that. It's also often unreliable at a household level like when there are big storms, we need it the most, it goes down. It's inefficient the way that our system is set up. I don't think there's anyone, even up at the Ontario Energy Board or the uh, ISO or fantastic organizations doing amazing work to drive things forward. I think everyone sees inefficiencies in the system. So I've, and, and as we move forward, when we think about putting solar panels on roofs, uh, heat pumps, 
um, battery storage uh, in our homes. Like I'm talking about all of these low carbon solutions that address problems of expense and efficiency and reliability. And you'll notice that they did all of that without talking about the fact that they also have to be lower carbon. So you can, my point in, in, in painting that, that picture is that the change from where we are now, from where we were 15 years ago or whatever, when I started working in this field, is that a lot of the solutions that we have today are in the money, right? They're economic now. And so you can talk about um, that hesitation at the economic cost. You can just talk about, you know, like, look, your EV does not have to get serviced as often as an internal combustion engine. You can power it with a solar panel on your roof and never pay for gas again. Those concepts are a bit like scary and dangerous for people who work in those systems. But ultimately, if you're talking about to people, you can just talk about it in positive economic costs. There are other areas like for um, like, you know, pathway lines in, in Western Canada, for example, really pushing our carbon capture and our hydrogen. Like those are things that are not economic now, but they uh, look to be economic in the future and potentially are very, very significant drivers of, of wealth and value. Uh, for Canada. So, all, and again, I talk about those things as wealth and value for Canada. I don't even mention the fact that they're lower carbon. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. Elliot Capel, again, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. No problem. Quite a pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. We were joined today by Elliot Capel, and many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss Toronto's resilience strategy and future steps we need to take to maintain that resilience. Today's show was produced by myself, Niku, alongside my co-producer, Kie. If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on the show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any parts of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all of our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of our show and want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Be sure to tune in next week as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves.